Hi, James. Ben, how are you? Much better, much better. We we did we actually tried a podcast a couple weeks ago, and I was I was a little busy and just kind of all over the place, and so I I canned it. But we're back. I like to compare it to when you were going through your IPO, and I think we tried a podcast once then, and we also canned it because it just wasn't happening. And uh, yeah, you know, life comes and goes. You're busier. You're you're less busy, and and I was a little busy, but now I'm all good. Yep. No. Well, welcome back. It's good to have you back. There were a few interesting uh, episodes last time we tried, but I'm glad to be back at regularly scheduled programming. Yes, yes, absolutely, absolutely. It does beg the question, Ben, why were you so busy? Yeah, <laughs> well, it's funny because uh, so I launched the new podcast service a couple of months ago with the Checkery sort of daily update, where it's basically me reading it. And that was part of the daily update. So if you already paid for the daily update, you could also get it via podcast. So there was a lot of interesting technical parts to that to you know have it tied in and tracking and and all the different sorts of things that went into that but it was a augmentation to my existing business model but it wasn't something new so what i also wanted to do was experiment with what would it be like to make a purely paid podcast and again part of this is i was saying i'm really proud of and i talked about this in the context of Shakri is i'm proud of Shakri of course but I'm also really proud of the business model, and it really makes me happy to see folks pursuing this model and going for it. And companies, you know, like Substack, wherever it might be, trying to build businesses, supporting people wanting to do this. I'm all for it, fully supportive. Love to see them doing that. It's kind of one of those things where you know, I once thought I would build a company like Substack, and then I realized actually I'm better off focusing on strategy. Building a company is really hard. It's it's difficult. Howard Stern rather than Sirius XM, huh? Something on those lines. And it was gratifying to come up with sort of this model. And then it's kind of cool that I don't have to pay anyone. Other people will invest in these folks to do all the hard work to build it up so other people can do it, which is totally fine by me. I want to see this model succeed. I want to see it out there. And so I've long argued and thought you could do a similar thing with podcasting. And so I wanted to sort of experiment and push out here too, not just because I think it'd be cool and maybe make a little money, but just because I want to see this model and the independent creator model expand and become more things. And so I sort of wanted to see what else we could do with it. Thus, the new podcast, Dithering, with our friend John Gruber and three times a week, 15 minutes per episode. It's short and consumable. You know exactly what you're getting, which I think is, you know, sorry, I'm kind of rambling here, but it's like, it's like they come off all this. The genesis of the business is interesting, but I'm super interested also in the genesis of the content side of it. There's a few things that I thought about. And the actual content and the look and feel and the aesthetic of Dithering is absolutely a shared project with me and John. When I speak about the podcast itself, I'm saying my part of what is definitely a two-part relationship. So I want to be super, super clear about that. So if I say me or I, then that's just because John's not here and I'm sort of speaking for myself. Got it. But... One of the things that I've thought about is what does it mean to sell content on the internet? And I wrote about it a little bit this week because you're selling a zero marginal cost good. You're selling bits, right? I mean, I'm literally selling email. And the whole trouble that the news industry has encountered and the content industry has encountered is it's really hard to sell something that doesn't have some sort of marginal cost attached to it. It turned out that selling a plastic disc was a lot easier than selling MP3s, right? Or selling a book is easier than selling text on a page or a newspaper, an actual paper. It's the actual physical aspects of that and the difficulties of producing it and distributing it and getting it in front of people. That was actually the foundation of all these different businesses. And once distribution became trivial and easy, it turned out that that actually was bad for business. It was good 
for the sort of content producer as far as reach goes. But as far as actually making a living, it wasn't so great after all. So one of the things that I've thought about is what am I selling with the daily updates? Am I selling an email? Well, that never felt quite right. And the whole like microtransaction thing, I've always been skeptical about because it takes a lot of work to produce something. And, and you produce a lot of work. There's no guarantee there's going to be a pickup and then try to sell it. And I'm not sure that that's a sustainable sort of approach for a publication or sort of an independent journalist. What is more attractive is people that are invested in your sort of ongoing production of content. And this idea that I'm going to deliver you this thing and you're going to pay me not necessarily for the thing itself, but for the ongoing production of this thing. It's like the difference between like discrete and continuous. Instead of paying for discrete items, you're paying for sort of continuous production. And the output ends up being discrete items, but those are sort of worthless artifacts, worthless in terms of a marginal cost perspective that are evidence of the ongoing production, which is what you're actually paying for. I'm not sure if that makes sense. It does make sense, but let me ground it with another example from when we've talked about this was when you described this model in the context of local news, you would pay someone to go collect the local news for you and report it. But some days they might report, well, there's actually no news today. And you still pay them because you're not paying for the piece of paper or the email. You're paying for the process of them to go out and to do this. And you need to pay them in such a way that they can reliably make a living doing it. That's exactly right. That's a perfect example. Like I'm paying for them to do the work to tell me that nothing is going on, <laughs> right? Like it's the effort that I actually want and I want the output from that. But it's almost like you have to integrate the effort with the output. Instead of trying to sell these discrete output items, it's all one package. You're paying for the entire package. And so you take that and you apply it to a podcast. Well, what's a problem with some podcasts? I mean, we work very hard to keep our podcast to about an hour and it's kind of predictable. And sometimes we go long and we feel a little sheepish about that because, you know, we want people to, if they start exponent, they know about how long it's going to take. And I would say something that our friend John has been a little less disciplined about, like his podcast could go an hour to two hours to three hours or whatever, which is fine. It works for him. But if you're purchasing something that feels overwhelming on one hand, on the other hand, you want to get something for your purchase, right? And so this is one of the ways we arrived at this idea of three 15-minute episodes a week. It's exactly 15 minutes every single time. It's three days a week. It's very well-defined exactly what you get. And I think that's an important piece of this business model. Like for the daily update, it's the same thing. You get that email four days a week. Boom, 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 boom. I mean, it actually used to be <laughs> five days a week plus two. I mean, actually, that's a good example. I started out too far in the other direction. People don't remember this, but I had two weekly articles that were only on the web plus five emails that I emailed to you. And it wasn't quite right because I was saying, oh, here's your email. And, oh, by the way, make sure you go to the website to check out the article that I wrote. And it was too much. It wasn't sustainable, but it also wasn't well-defined for my subscribers what I was giving them. The whole model really clicked into place when I shifted into everything as an email. So one of the daily emails is the weekly article that's free, but I will also email it to you. So you get in the expectation you're only going to consume my content via email, and that's fine. You never have to visit the website again. And it's very clear what you get, and it's up to me to deliver that. Yeah. Once upon a time, you'd wake up, you'd go grab the dog, you'd get the dog to run down the driveway and find the newspaper. Like it was a habit. It was reliable. And it's the same thing here, which is like, hmm, you wake up and that email's there and you're ready to read it. Yeah. 
if you're going to sell this sort of integrated idea that, yes, I'm throwing off artifacts that you're going to consume, but you're investing in sort of the ongoing production of those artifacts, then I think it's really important to be regular. And people, you will sometimes you know, we say, oh, Ben, it's okay if you, especially if, I, like, if I'm sick or something, or I take a day off. Like, oh, you should take more days off. You should, I care more about quality than quantity. And I think there's a aspect where, you know, there's the revealed preference idea where what you say and what you actually <laughs> do is different. And I think there's a bit of that here. I, I really don't think... Let's say in a magical world, I wrote two times a week and they were 10% better than what I write doing four times a week. I think my business would be less successful. We'll use whatever numbers you want. I really think there's some important aspect of the regularity and the consistency. It doesn't have to be four days a week. It could be three days a week or something like that. But there's, I don't know, maybe it's, I don't have clear numbers. Yeah, I don't have clear numbers about this. It's just sort of a sense that I have yeah. that if you're asking people to invest in you, it's up to you to be very clear about what you're delivering and then to meet that. Yeah, that makes total sense. So that was part of the thinking about the structure of this. And this is something where I think it made sense for me to do it with John because we're both professional writers. So we we have free time on our hands. I mean, people were worried like, oh, are you going to be able to still do the daily updates? Like, I mean, the good thing, too, it's also only 45 minutes a week. And we're like, we're going to have an editor. And so, I mean, we want you to subscribe to it because it's enjoyable and it's something that you find fun. It's great for like washing dishes. It's not super long. It's super predictable how long it is. But definitely don't buy it because you feel we're just devoting hours and hours to this and you're going to like reward us for our hard work. No, we think we can produce something fun and cool and we're throwing it out there. And if you like it, you like it. And if you don't, you don't. That's fine. For folks who haven't had a chance to listen yet, tell us about the content. So it's you and John Gruber. Like what's the basis of the discussion every episode? It's usually tech-related. I mean, because it's John, or it's probably a little more Apple-centric than Shotechery is, but we've definitely talked about Apple more than other topics. If you go to dithering.fm, we have descriptive titles, and you can see exactly what we talked about. And because it's only 15 minutes, it's not like there was a lot of other talk. But it's much more of a conversation and a back and forth, whereas Shotechery is much more in-depth and getting into the details and strategic frameworks. Like, we're not getting into that, right? It's definitely a adjacent product to Shotechery, it's not an overlap. Whereas Exponent is much more of a spoken version. Like we're getting into the strategy itself and into the details and that sort of thing. So it's definitely a very different product. We don't currently have a trial thing to try out an episode. That's definitely something we need. It's more a matter of getting the tools built to do that. And that's been the other fun thing is building the tooling around this stuff. We're constrained right now by the membership software that I'm still using third-party membership software. And so there's definite opportunities to sort of make that experience better. And so stay tuned. If, if you don't want to put in $5 a month or whatever, that's fine. We're committed to this. There'll be an opportunity to, to dive in at some point. The other thing that people have been like, oh, you know, are you still going to have time to do the daily update? I mean, one, as I kind of mentioned, like I was working insane hours previously. So actually, I think I'm, I'm doing okay right now. But two, I have to say it's really, really invigorating to, I mean, not to be cliche, but to like build something, to like do something new. And as I mentioned previously, I'm really proud of the Shrekery business model, in part because if I'm going to sit around and sort of like tell people what to do, no, I haven't run Apple or run <laughs> Google or run Facebook or whatever it might be. But it's also like, I've at least I've created like something, like I created this business model and, and a business that was successful and didn't exist in the world previously. Yeah. And I just personally find that very important. I created the Shrekery business model back in 2014. That was six years ago, right? And, you know, I've been sitting around doing a lot of, you know, I've been doing a lot of talking. And at some point, it's really nice to get back in the weeds and, and sort of build something again. And I honestly think it's been great for Shrekery. You know, I think 
there's been an aspect where trajectory has been livelier and a little sharper than I think it's been in a while. And I honestly, I think a big part of that is because, you know, when it comes to, I don't know, I'm just sort of like spouting off the top of my head here, but you don't like conserve mental energy, right? It's either you're adding to it or it's sort of declining. And from my perspective, at least this works for me, like the busier I am and the more I'm engaged in things, the better my thinking is in lots of places, as opposed to saying, I need to save my energy so I can think a lot about the daily update tomorrow. Yeah, that makes total sense. That engagement point in particular, I totally agree. Yeah, have you experienced this in like your career? Like, w- oh. like when you're super locked in, it's like you're actually sharper at everything. Totally. There've been moments where you're just like, it's, Like you get in the zone, you dive down into this thing and you're doing something that you've picked that you want to do. I think that's a pretty important aspect to it. Like there's some degree of choice and it's meaningful to you and you dive in and then you just find yourself so productive. It's like not just on that thing, but just in terms of like you can run through walls wherever it is. And like the most recent example that comes to mind that I've talked about was the IPO. But I remember back to writing the book with Clay. I was doing that and then I was writing for HBR and whatever. It's like some of the most productive in terms of the written word. And it's just like you think there's less time, but somehow being in the zone just warps it. It warps time and lets you fit more into it. It's kind of crazy. No, it's absolutely been the case. Like I've actually been finishing earlier in the day in part because you just started earlier in the morning, you're going. And honestly, like there being no MBA has probably been very good for me in this regard. But it's like you're locked in sooner and earlier. And yeah, so anyhow, the proof will be in the pudding. But I would tell my concerned subscribers that I don't think there's there's anything to fear. I remember way back when you were like doing all that stuff and freelancing and everything else. You're not at capacity right now. (laughs) I think there's a bit too where sort of life goes in seasons, right? You can sort of go in cycles and there's times where you're ready to be locked in and do stuff. And there's times where there's other stuff going on. And actually, I've read about this too, where so I'm turning 40 on Saturday, actually. Oh, wow. Yeah. Exciting. <laughs> it's, it's pretty great. Well, but I had kids relatively early. My daughter was born when I was 27. And I actually read about this where for a lot of folks, when their kids are young, there's a bit of a sort of a plateau in sort of their careers. And crazily enough, I mean, I was starting to check at the time, but once your kids sort of get back to school, that is often like the most productive time in a lot of people's lives. It's like that 10 to 15 years. And I think there's an aspect in parents, I think, can relate to this. Once I had kids, I got so much more productive in part because you had a forcing function on your time. Like you had a constraint. If I want to actually spend time with this person, I have to be very disciplined about my time management and my work and what I do. And it actually makes you more productive in all aspects of your life. And I think there's probably some aspect to that, why this, for a lot of people, this is the most productive periods of their careers because you have a lot of things going on. But once the kids get a little older, you have a lot of stuff going on that falls into a routine to some degree. So you have both constraints on your time, but also sort of well defined areas where you can be creative and do th- more things. And I kind of feel like that's a zone. I don't know. I'm, this is getting too personal. I like to, let's go back to strategy or whatever, but <laughs> I've definitely felt that over the last little bit and it's been a lot of fun. And it's to everybody else's benefit, but I want to take us back to something you said earlier, where it's like, you're having to build out all the tools and these things. I mean, yes, you're integrating effort and you're integrating output, but at the same time, you're not 
especially producing anything on the internet today, you're not an island. You can't be integrated all the way up and down the stack. I mean, let me be incredibly provocative to start with. Why not just post it on Spotify? (laughs) Well, that's cheating, given that I I wrote about that this week. (laughs) Well, there's multiple levels to this. So I would start with, there's other startups doing sort of the pay podcast thing. One of the things here is I feel a lot of them, and I wish them all well, but they're all like very focused on podcasts. Whereas I have Stratechery. I already have a membership system. I already have a blog and writing. So first and foremost, I wanted to have a more integrated sort of system that worked together better with what I already have, as opposed to trying to have like two systems, trying to sync and pushing stuff back and forth that just seem messy. But then also it's like, this is a real opportunity. Like blogs have been around for 20 years. So I came along and yeah, there's been a couple of neat things that, you know, I've tried to do with the site with like sort of the concepts page and, you know, rethinking what archives can be and stuff along those lines. But whereas the podcasting space is one, obviously podcasts exist, but this whole area like, what can you do if every user has their own feed? Like, what sort of unique things can you do? And there seems like a lot of opportunity to try out different stuff. So rule number one was I wanted it to work better with what I had. Yeah. Number two was the chance for experimentation. And then number three, just to be totally frank, I can afford it, which cuts in two directions. One, I can afford developers. But two, a challenge in this space for the substacks of the world and the companies building things here is if they're most profitable creators – realize that why should I be paying you X percent when I could just build it myself? That's going to be a challenge in figuring out this model generally. And so I'm probably a bad influence in in the market in that regard, but it is a reality. Well, I also think there's another aspect to this, which is there are lots of folks who are creatives who don't want to deal with this stuff. It's not just that you can afford to do it from a financial perspective. It interests you and it engages you and excites you. Whereas there are a bunch of creators, like I would imagine podcasters in literally every other space other than the technology space, to whom the idea of building their own podcast integration with their membership platform does not sound like the kind of thing they want to be spending their time on. That's a great point. And that's the whole thing too, is this space needs to be available to people that aren't technically inclined. And so that's why I'm super excited about these platforms being built because it's so hard to build an audience and achieve an audience. That should be the only difficulty. Everything else should be made easy for you. And so, yeah, I I think that's exactly right. At the same time, that cuts both ways because I think one of the points that you got across in your article this week, and I think it was very well made, is that people want to cheat even further than just doing the technical integration. They want someone to bring the audience for them too, and they end up in the hands of the aggregators. Yeah, that's exactly right. And this is where the Spotify point comes in, but it's a broader point. And I honestly can't be made enough, so I'm happy to revisit it and probably for the rest of this episode. When we originally announced dithering a response from some people was oh that's not a podcast it's like well why is it not a podcast because it's not open i was like well no actually it's very open it is based on rss you can play it in apple podcast you can play it in overcast you can play it in pocket cast you can play it in downcast you can play it in castro you can play it in itunes you can play it on your desktop it's an mp3 it's not drm it's open it's as open as can be now it's not free right? But that's the key thing. Open and free are not the same thing. And if you want an example of that, look at Stratechery. Like I send emails, right? Those emails are not DRM. Those emails are sent to individual subscribers to their individual email addresses. But that's no different than sending a podcast to an individual RSS feed. It's the exact same idea. And it's really, really important to understand that it's because podcast is 
open that it's even possible for me to monetize in this way. And this distinction between open and free is super duper critical to understand. It is possible for you to monetize, but it's not easy for you to monetize, is it? Right. Well, let's play this out. If you are free, how do you monetize? Well, there is really only two obvious solutions, which end up being combined into one. Number one is you have ads. Number two is you sell data. What actually happens is you end up using your data to sell ads. And the problem with that is the only way to ultimately make money in a space like that is to do it at scale. And we saw this with the early web. And we've talked about this a a bit in the context of Exponent Spotify for sure. But just broadly speaking, the web back in the 2000s or 1990s, like people tried to monetize the same way they monetized, you know, like newspapers. Yeah. They put text on and they slapped an advertisement next to it. And people would talk about, analog dollars or print dollars and digital dimes because it's like, well, digital just doesn't monetize very well. It's like, well, yeah, because you're trying to do a poor version of what worked in the offline world. And you see this again and again, right? This idea of the first TV shows were just people acting out radio shows, right? Or things along those lines. And every time you jump to a new medium, people try to sort of imitate what came before and do it on the new medium, but they have to actually figure out what is native to the new medium first. Makes total sense. And the newspaper versus Facebook example, where you start putting ads on that look like newspapers, doesn't work so well. When you start making ads that are native to a medium that's in some equivalent of how people spend their time and such that you're targeting the ad in such a way and it feels like it's just like all the rest of the content starts to become a lot more effective. That's right. And you think about it, a feed is not possible offline, right? This idea of having custom content to you that is endless, like that's only possible in digital. And so that was the key. You had to have the feed first. And then once you had the feed, oh, you put ads in the feed and you have this killer ad unit that it turns out it's not print dollars in digital dimes, it's print pennies in digital $10 bills or whatever you want to do. It's not just native ads. You have to first figure out what is native, right? We had to first figure out the feed. And then once we figure out the feed, then we could figure out how to monetize it. And the monetization, of course, is the same format as the feed. And so that's what you have with Facebook. And just like your feed is customized to yes. you, the ad is customized to you. You go back to TV, it's the same idea. What happened with commercials? They turned into these mini little scripted shows, just like the scripted shows on TV. It's the exact same idea. Yeah, that's the power of it, right? The point at which, yes, it's easy to imagine, wow, what about a newspaper built just for you? But what people often forgot with that thought is like, well, if you can customize the content just for you, the power when you're customizing the ads down to the level of the individual and what you know about them and what they've been clicking on and their demographics, like how incredibly powerful that is. And of course, an advertiser is going to pay more for that. Right. And you realize the extent to which Facebook is inevitable. You know what I mean? Like, even if Mark Zuckerberg never walked this earth, someone was going to figure out that a feed is what makes sense. And once you're delivering customized content, it's the tiniest step to deliver customized ads. Right. And like, yes, around the margins, there might be different decisions made, things on those lines. But this concept, it's what was going to happen. Just like TV was going to end up with scripted shows and the different forms of advertising through newspapers were going to have classifieds. All these things were native to the medium. And it's always that multi-step process. You have a new medium. Then you have the imitation of the medium that came before that doesn't work very well. Then you figure out what the new medium can do that the old medium can't. 
And then step three, you monetize it. And the monetization is part and parcel of part two. It's tied into the uniqueness of that medium itself. It does beg the question though. And I, again, this, I think is the point of your article this week, like this happened for text. Is this not just going to happen for audio as well? Isn't that the Spotify play? Right. Well, what happened here with, with Facebook is Facebook figured out all the advertising. They figured out these unique feeds. And so people spent lots of time there and you got this sort of virtuous cycle. And then publishers had no choice but to sort of put their stuff on Facebook and hopefully get a flood of traffic. And eventually Facebook said, well, we had to pay to play, you have to promote your post, et cetera, et cetera. And they're squeezing all of the value out of the sort of value chain. And so you think about podcasting. Well, where's podcasting right now? Well, podcasting by and large is, you remember those charts that Mary Meeker does every year, right? The internet trends charts. And for years and years and years, it would show time spent versus amount of advertising. And the internet would always have way more time spent than amount of advertising. And it would be like, well, there's a big gap here. It's a big opportunity. And then over a span of a number of years, like 2012, 13, 14, boom, that it yeah. just closed up like, like nobody's business. It's like that's when Facebook figured out the feed because Google had got the search part figured out in the search ads, which kind of you know killed one aspect of advertising. But Facebook figured out that part and boom, it closed that gap and now there is no more gap, right? But podcast has the gap right now where the amount of time people spend listening to podcasts is not matched by the amount of money spent on podcast advertising. Podcasting is very under-monetized relative to other ways that people spend their time. Which would suggest there's a little bit of an opportunity there. Right, exactly. So you think about it. Well, let's go back to our framework. So number one, you get sort of a pale imitation of advertising previously. Number two, you get something that is much more native to the medium. And then number three, you, you sort of monetize it. And it's interesting. I'm actually kind of thinking this out loud. I'm not quite sure, like, where are podcasts in this? Some podcasts are just radio shows, right? And right. I think you see this a lot with the NPR sort of things along those lines. Some podcasts are very much sort of like social media. It's like anyone can make a podcast. And, you know, frankly, you and I are probably closer to that side of the divide than anything else. But what is it? that makes a podcast unique. There's definitely some aspect of time shifting. There is some aspect of listening to it when you want to do it. I mean, I don't know. You've talked about your journey with podcasts and you weren't a big listener before. What, what do you think makes the podcast medium sort of different and unique from what came previously? The thing for me has always been, it's gone from a geographic constraint where you basically had to create content that appealed to folks inside of a geographic constraint. And like FM radio would only go so far. And so you'd have similar types of stations in every big city and AM radio would be the same and similar types of stations. And some of that content would be syndicated across, but in general, there would be this tendency towards the average in the same way when we talk about when you walk down a supermarket aisle, it would be the stuff designed to appeal to the most people. And the thing that happened with podcasting is the geographic expanse reached all the way out to the globe in the same way that when you buy things on Amazon, it's just a billion different niches, like all the different things that you could have. And for me, that was electronic dance music. It was really hard to find a decent dance music channel on the radio when you went to a new city. And if you went to a really big city, you might get lucky and find one. Again, I arrived in California and I got serious and I started listening to it and I thought this was great, but they kept on talking about download my podcast, download my podcast. And I was like, this is probably just going to be a crappy copy. And then I realized it was exactly what they were playing on Sirius, except this way I could listen to whichever DJ I wanted whenever I wanted. And I could go through the entire back catalog as opposed to be reliant on the four serious dance music channels. And it was like, 
oh, I get it now. It's this explosion and it encourages all these niches to form around every possible thing. So it doesn't matter what it is you're into, you're able to find something that you absolutely love and it rewards creators that are able to go really deep as opposed to really wide. When you put it that way, it ends up sounding a lot like the value that sort of like Facebook provides, right? Where everyone gets what they want, when they want it, where they want it. There's customization that actually fits in with my thesis where I think the concern, it's funny, this is like analyst Ben thinks the opportunity, <laughs> you know, publisher Ben is like the concern is that Spotify is going as hard as they can after what looks like a sort of Facebook type opportunity. I don't think necessarily at the same scale, but this idea where, okay, if podcasts make it possible for anyone to hear what they want, where they are, when they want to hear it, then there should be an opportunity to deliver ads that meet people where they are, when they want, when they want to hear it. And you think about current podcast advertising, it's not like that at all, right? You have an ad that the host reads per podcast, which means everyone gets the same ad all over the world, whenever they listen to it. You can listen to an ad from you know a few years ago, and it's like hilariously out of date. Like there's a permanence to advertising in podcasting right now that doesn't seem to fit the medium. It totally doesn't. Like, I didn't want to play Debbie Downer on this because I loved what you're doing. But like, my concern around this is viewing this through the lens of open versus closed and when one is better. Like, I have a natural inclination, as I think you do, towards open ecosystems. But the problem is you get a whole bunch of hobbyists or people who care about something and just love it for the sake of it. And they're often the ones that create an open ecosystem, whether it's the internet or podcasts or whatever it might be. And they create something and it's a platform for all these people to come on and jump on and it it creates an explosion. But the problem is they're only able to see so far into the future as to what those standards require. And I think this is why Facebook ended up dominating versus the open web is like the open web was amazing for like creating and consuming content. But this realization that you really needed a different content unit and a different ad unit and almost a different format. And you needed to control the experience end to end in order to be able to deliver those things. And what I worry about is we're at a similar point now with podcasts, which is like the open has got us here. I'm worried that it's not going to be extensible enough to get us where we need to go in terms of bringing all this revenue in that ends up pushing an ecosystem into the next level. And that's the opportunity that Spotify has. And like, you could see a world in which the folks who are focused on the open thing come back in and they try and tinker around to make it. But the problem is the rewards, they don't get any internal benefit beyond just seeing this community grow. Whereas if there's one player who comes along and tries to dominate it, they're able to capture so much value. And I worry there's this TikTok effect where these ecosystems start out open and it allows it to explode, but then someone comes along and closes it. And if they close it successfully by bringing in another group, then they're able to capture a whole bunch of value. And it's very hard for open ecosystems to compete with that. Yeah, and the open ecosystems are like praying ground for aggregators. Like the big reason we've talked about Google and the reason why their technology would be so compelling is because the web was so disparate and so spread out. And it was just like pieces around that someone was come along and sort of vacuum up, right? You know, the thing to remember is aggregators succeed 
because they're a win-win for everyone, at least at the beginning. And, you know, you think about the podcast advertising. So you think, you know, if the value of podcasting is this idea of you can listen to it anytime, anywhere, exactly what you want to listen to. You're not constrained to the local radio or time or whatever the things might be or interests, then it follows. It probably makes sense that the advertising vehicle that works for that is customized to you, is personal to you, is right for the time, right for the space. But it follows, how do you deliver on that? Well, you don't deliver on it by having podcasters read their own ads, as charming as that might be. You deliver on that by streaming everything and then putting in the right podcast for every user on an individualized basis. And that's what Spotify is building towards because everything streams from there, including the podcast. And they watched this last year. They watched it with their podcast. I think there's a reason why they bought their own podcast. They bought them not to make them exclusive and to make you sign up for a subscription. No, they are the sort of first best customer for their advertising product that they want to take over the whole ecosystem. And they can deliver exactly an advertising that makes sense for you in the context of the show and it's personalized and it fits with what podcasts are and why they're attractive to customers. And you can definitely imagine a scenario where that monetization gap for podcasts closes rapidly because Spotify actually produces a far more compelling advertising product that is great for Spotify and at least in the short term is great for podcasters themselves because Spotify will pay them more than other advertisers will. The problem is, though, like any time you introduce a drug of dependence, and especially if you become absolutely dominant in the space and you're the only shop in town, then you can just change the rules of the road. And you as a creator, it becomes very hard for you to do anything about it because where are you going to go? Yep, that's exactly right. I mean, and if it turns out that Spotify just helps you monetize, or imagine Spotify a few years down the road is like, look, if you don't include ads on your podcast and publish on Spotify, you'll make more money here, something along those lines. And suddenly they're squeezing out the other advertising channels, or maybe they even let you keep the ads, but they're like, oh, you come on Spotify, and now the terms of service are you have to accept ads, but it's going to be worth it because you're going to get so much money out of it. And by the way, we also have you know 100 million listeners or 200 million or whatever it might be, and our algorithms put it in front of people's faces. So discovery is a big challenge for podcasts. How do you find a new podcast, et cetera, et cetera. Like there's lots of compelling reasons to have a central player in this space. And the obvious candidate has always been Apple, but they seem disinterested and Spotify is sort of picking up the slack. Right. And I mean, this is one of the instances where the player who has the most to gain from the open ecosystem remaining open actually has the resources and isn't necessarily interested in closing it themselves. Like you hope against hope that Apple actually steps up here and starts to give this community some of what it needs. Because like earlier on, it was almost like the thesis for like how these open ecosystems start to get strangled by aggregators or closed by aggregators. But this is actually one instance where there's a player who's still here, who has a lot of resources, who has a lot of clout, who's relatively centralized and could help see this open ecosystem continue to thrive. Yeah, the problem is, is, you know, is Apple interested, right? I mean, a lot of people think that you upload a podcast to iTunes and download from iTunes. That's not how it works. iTunes is just a directory that points you to, it's like a yellow pages that points you to where to go get this podcast or that podcast. Anyone can plug into it. Why is it in Apple's interest to keep it open? I mean, they're not really benefiting from it. They didn't build any sort of advertising network, even though they're the ones that were in place to do so. They could build a monetization possibility, but they'd probably just be in it to take 30% or whatever it might be. I mean, I guess 
what is Apple's interest in doing so beyond the fact that they happen to be there first? I mean, like the nature of tech is such that anyone who's competing with you in a specific space could be an enemy. And right now, like if you think Apple's serious about music and serious about having people to listen to stuff on their applications, on their devices and controlling that experience. Like if you have more of the podcasters moving onto Spotify, potentially not exclusively at first, but maybe more and more, like it then starts to threaten their ability to create a music offering. I would like to think they would care. I mean, the problem is they just haven't shown any care about podcasts for years and their podcast player is terrible. It doesn't support basic things like art in podcasts, you know, which basically everyone else does. So I agree with you. Apple is the obvious counterweight. I just don't know if they're going to wake up. And I feel like if they wake up, it will just be because they're going to try to take their own skim. This gets, though, why I feel it is, in some respects, more urgent, right? Facebook is still, you know, yes, a publisher has to be on Facebook because they want to get an audience and make advertising. But if you're not interested in that, you can go direct to customers because it's still the web, right? And you can still get subscribers directly. And the concern, and this is, I mean, I'm being totally subjective here because it's obviously my interest are at stake. But in part, I am purposely putting my interest at stake because I feel like someone needs to like do something here is Spotify cuts that off completely. Like, again, dithering is open. This trajectory daily update podcast is open. You can add it to any podcast that supports openness. Guess what podcast player you can't add it to? Spotify. There's no way to add an arbitrary RSS feed. Why? You have to go to Spotify's website as a podcaster, agree to their terms of service, put in your RSS feed, and then they'll potentially agree to carry it. And I mean, they usually do now, but you know, they could always say no. They could always pull it. They could always change the terms of service. It has the classic, which all terms of service do. I have to admit, striking this too, which is, you know, it's your responsibility to monitor this to see if anything has changed, but it's not open. And that's bad in a Facebook is not open sort of way, but it's even worse and it's actually cutting off an alternate means of monetization at its knees. Like there is no paid podcasts in a world where Spotify dominates podcasts. It's restricting the entire medium to one business model. And I don't think that's good for anyone. That's not true. It's good for Spotify. Well, yeah, fair enough. I mean, and again, I'm not mad at them, right? No. I mean, they're acting in self-interest, right? Analyst Ben thinks it's great. This is a really smart move. There's a big opportunity here. And again, it's a win-win-win for at least the first five to 10 years where they grow the space. They make more money for everyone. It's a big opportunity, et cetera, et cetera. It's only when you get to, you know, Facebook from 2006 to 2000, whatever, or, you know, what's good (laughs) for publishers. Then at some point, they start squeezing out all the value. And that's, I think, what's going to happen with podcasts. And at least we've been able to scratch out a new business model with email and subscriptions and things along the edges of Facebook. The problem with the Spotify thing, what makes it worse is there are no edges when it comes to Spotify. Then you're getting into not just, oh, people already checked their email so I can sell into that. It's like, oh, you listen to podcasts on Spotify, you need to go download another app and add it. And you're starting to increase all these barriers to independent publishing. And Independent publishing is like, that's my thing. Like I want to see it prosper. And again, that's part of why I'm doing this. It's like, I want to put a stake in the ground, be like, look, this is a business model that needs to exist. And oh, by the way, let me weigh the flavor here. You can't listen to this in Spotify. Everyone pay attention. That's a problem. Yep. Anyhow, but it is very weird because like I said, as an analyst, I love it. I love what Spotify is doing. It's great. (laughs) It's very smart. (laughs) Let it never be said anyone question your objectivity about this. (laughs) I I felt a little bad about the article this week. I I don't know. I think it's an issue. I think Apple is the obvious counterweight. Again, I worry that Apple will see this as just like a money-making opportunity. It's tough. It will always be the case. No big company is going to fight for the open web. You know, it's one of those things that we're – 
so lucky it exists. Like the internet is such an accident of history. Yeah. If, if anyone knew what the internet would have meant, it never would have been allowed. And it falls on us that see the benefits to defend it. And I try to stay objective and not insert myself into things. You know, I like to think of like, I try to like the Switzerland of tech or something along those lines. <laughs> but as part of that, it's like, do you tolerate intolerant people, right? At some point, you got to draw a line. And it's like, look, Spotify, I recognize what you're doing. From an analyst perspective, I think it's really great. But for what I believe in and the core of my business and why I believe the open web is important, I am going to stand here and say, we should all be worried about this. This is something to be concerned about. Yeah. And I guess we're putting our money where our mouth is because obviously dithering's not there. And <laughs> and you're right. We might be more along the lines of the social media as opposed to the New York Times in terms of publishing. But like, if you want to listen to us, you've got to do it through the open web. And we appreciate there's a degree of friction we're introducing for those folks who are used to listening to everything in Spotify. And I get it. It's nice to have everything in one place, but we appreciate you bearing with us. And these are the reasons why we believe in it. Yeah. And people are like, X one's free. Why do you care? You can get more of an audience. And the problem is that that's exactly how aggregators win. Yeah. Right. If we were advertising supported, that would be hard to turn down, particularly if you're in a more corporate environment where you don't have full control over what you do. But more broadly, more audience to what end? So I, okay, I get more audience and then I can't monetize them with trajectory because my actual monetizable vehicle is not useful in Spotify. How have I benefited from that, right? That's the very selfish perspective. From a broader perspective, it's like, I'd rather you don't listen to podcasts in Spotify. I mean, I think it's bad for the ecosystem and great for Spotify. We will continue to fly the pirate radio flag over the top of our respective podcast. Yes, something along those lines. <laughs> Oh, well. So how's Cloudflare holding up in the pandemic? Yeah. I mean, I feel incredibly lucky. There are lots of folks who are struggling right now as a result of this. But the simple fact is there are a lot more people using the internet. And like a lot of internet companies, we've seen traffic growth explode in a very short period of time. And more people using the internet is generally good for business. How is working from home for your company? That's a really interesting question, actually. So we're starting to think about what happens next. And we've created a task force of, of which I'm co-chairing it, actually, thinking about what life looks like after this, like when we can start to go back. And the aim is to basically try and understand what people liked about working from the office and what people like about working from home and seeing, I mean, in so many respects, right, this has zeroed so many people's challenged so many people's assumptions about so many things and no more so than the way we work. And so use this as an opportunity. Okay. Like how can we make when things return to normal or gradually return to normal, how can we make things better as a result of this? And it's going to be an interesting process to work through it because there are some aspects I absolutely miss, but there are some aspects about working from home that have actually surprised me. I've really enjoyed. Like what? So I have a lot more control over what I eat. If I get a 30-minute break in between meetings and I'm not in the mood for doing work, I've like done a quick little workout. And like that's not the kind of thing that you can do in the office. Some of the challenges have been like, I didn't realize how much I relied on physicality to set boundaries. So obviously things are naturally going to blur, but when I'm in the office, I'm doing work or in the pre-COVID world, I was in the office doing work. And then when I left the office, I was going to the gym and I was working out or I was at home and I was like not doing either of those things. And then my physicality got restricted to home. And especially at the start, trying to figure out how to reset 
habits and focus and work out and do all these things was a struggle. But now I've kind of got into a rhythm of it and there are aspects to it that I really, really like. Yeah, that's a challenge for everyone, I think, is the how do you make it so you, when you're at work, when you're not at work? Yeah. A part of it is in part because I've switched a long time ago to I work on my computer and almost everything else I do on my phone. So there's an aspect where once I'm done, I leave the computer and then I don't come back to the computer till the next day. And so that definitely helps a lot. If you're someone that is on your computer for personal stuff, that probably makes it a little difficult. But yeah, learning how to draw lines is definitely a tough one. And I think your point, like, yeah, you can leverage your time. But at the same time, though, your work doesn't have to happen in an eight-hour block, right? right? Like for me, I find it very productive to after the kids go to bed. Like that's a great time actually for me to sometimes get stuff done because I'm in a certain state of mind that's good. But I will make up for that at other times in the day where I'm going to go and work out or I'm going to do something along those lines. But you have to be disciplined to your point. That doesn't turn into 16 hours of constantly being sort of on, right? (laughs) Being very clear about when you're working and when you're not working is definitely something that's important. I kind of had a little bit of a head start on this because the process of working on a book where the deadline was like 12 to 18 months out, I learned a lot about how to manage this type of thing. Now, the work on a creative project like a book, you begin to realize that what you want to learn to recognize is the moments when you are switched on and it doesn't matter what you had planned, you drop everything and you just write and you just let it out because those moments are precious. At the same time, if you plan to write and you're writing crap, you're just wasting time. Like go do something else, go to the gym, go shop, go read or watch a movie. But the moment it switches on, you got to be back there and you got to be writing. Now it's not quite the same with work because like working inside of a larger organization, it's not an entirely solitary experience that there are other people's schedules, like there are codependencies, but there are aspects of that experience that have taught me how to manage this a little bit better than I think someone coming in cold. Yeah, so you'll be in San Francisco in a year? That's a really interesting question. We will see. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. Twitter announced that they'll yeah. be able to sort of work from home permanently, it, which sounds like Twitter being over the top. Well, Twitter was the first to work from home in this case, and they've been rightly ahead of the curve. It's going to be really, really interesting to watch. I think the time period matters because if this was only a short time, people would snap back, Because especially because the initial, it's so jarring and your kids are at home and it, like it's miserable to start. But like, what's the thing with like, exercise or whatever? Like after a certain amount of time, it turns into a habit. Yes. And especially for the companies that let people stay home longer, like habits are going to form. Remember when the virus was coming, everyone was sort of scared to say, this is a big deal. It's coming, right? I want to say this on a podcast first before I sort of say it, uh, Shekri. There's some aspect here where I think people, there's a strong bias towards conservatism that nothing's going to change. You know, oh, it's easy to talk about. Everyone says that everything's going to be different. And no, the safe position is that it's going to go back to things we were. And why wouldn't things change, right? Again, you think about it. There is a logic to distributed work and to work from home. There's a reason people were talking about it for years and years that the internet is going to enable a new way of working. And everyone sort of gave up on that because it never happened. But did it not happen because it wasn't right? Or did it not happen because the status quo was so powerful? And once that status quo is interrupted, does that logic now sort of take over? And it's like, oh, yeah, actually, it should be done differently. And now we're already doing it differently at first, not by choice, but going forward. Yeah, this makes total sense. It's interesting you're thinking about this because I haven't written anything for a while, but the observation of people's conservatism in the face of this, I got invited to speak to 
a class that was finishing up at Berkeley a few weeks ago, and I was thinking about how do I make this relevant and the extent to which people were conservative in their approach to this and seeing who managed it well and who didn't and what the difference was is something I've been thinking a lot about. So it's interesting you're thinking about it too, because I think I'm going to get off my backside and write something. But I think you're right about the broader interruption of the status quo here. I think there's a lot to be said for letting people work from where they want to work. I do think though, it's one of these things where it's come up in our discussions, like the circumstances, it depends. Like I heard Apple's going back and bringing everyone back to the office. and No surprise. Yes, exactly right. No surprise from a secrecy perspective, no surprise from the nature of what they're working on. I think there's some aspect for when you're working on something really difficult at the cutting edge of something, like when you really don't know what it is that you're building, that having people together, the nature of serendipity and whatever, I think is really important. But once something is more defined, like once you're away from integration, for example, and you're starting to modularize it and you have a degree of reliability, I think it matters a lot less where people are. And if you can put them in a circumstance where they're more comfortable or in a city where they're more comfortable, or you don't have to put them through a miserable two-hour commute, I think there's a lot to be said for that. Yep, that's exactly where I fall as well. And I think that it'll fall into the sort of the natural life cycle of companies. So yeah, there's an article I've been thinking around these lines. Well, let's say this, because I think we already gave away part of something that I've been working on. We'll talk about it again when it happens, because it's on both our minds. And yes, you should go right too. Yeah, done. Sounds good. I'll talk to you later. Yeah. Uh, wait, wait, before you go, congratulations again on dithering, but also happy early 40th birthday. I, 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 <laughs> I know you're locked in. Well, actually, Taiwan's not locked in. So I hope it's a wonderful day on Saturday for you. I am having a birthday party. So awesome. that's, that's, that's how great things are in I Taiwan. Am, I am glad to hear that. But enjoy it. Sounds good. Thank you. I'll talk to you later. See you, mate. Bye-bye.